Beeil dich, Hülkenberg. Wir brauchen dich. And welcome to Shift F1, a podcast about speedy race cars. That, by the way, is German for hurry, Hülkenberg. We need you. Something Hülkenberg uh, heard just hours before the qualifying session on Saturday. Probably in English, though. Uh, we'll get to that. I am Drew Scanlon. Joining me, we have Rob Zachney. How are you, Rob? Uh... I enjoyed a race for a change. Uh, I have lots of notes from things that happened. Uh, there are lots of interesting things to discuss, so I'm happy as a clam. Awesome. Uh, Daniel Dwyer is on assignment today. Uh, if you are new to this podcast, a very warm welcome. And if you are new to Formula One itself, uh, we recommend listening to our preseason primer episode, which assumes no prior F1 knowledge and explains how the sport works, who everybody is. So if you want to listen to that, it's episode 96. Also, the show is supported entirely by our audience over at patreon.com slash shift F1, where every month we release bonus podcasts and videos exclusively for our patrons uh, covering racing documentaries and films, F1 video games, primers on other racing series and a lot of weird things so if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of that fun stuff uh, head over to patreon.com slash shift f1 or click the link in the show notes most recently we had a review of the uh the classic i would say a documentary senna which is up on netflix so if you want to check out our thoughts on that uh that's over uh, on patreon today however we will be discussing the not <laughs> i almost said the german grand prix definitely not the German Grand Prix, uh, the Eiffel Grand Prix. Um, but before we even got to racing, it was already eventful. Uh, Rob, can you kind of give an overview of what happened? Uh, yeah, it's <laughs> been a weird race. racing weekend. Uh, there was a COVID outbreak at Mercedes, and they had to quarantine, as you, as you do with COVID. Uh, they had a positive test. They began quarantine procedures. They had another positive test, but I think all totaled, they quarantined six people uh, because that was the people. Those are the people they needed who uh, had been in contact with some of their positive tests. So uh, Mercedes had a lot of personnel uh, rotating in for the F1 weekend pretty late. That might have had an impact on a couple things that that happened uh, this weekend. But Mercedes was having a bit of a chaotic weekend. But that's nothing compared to what happened over at Racing Point, where Lance Stroll uh, got really sick. And team principal Omar Safnauer uh, was weirdly specific about uh, how he was sick. Uh, he couldn't leave the toilet uh, long enough to drive a race car. However... He did keep returning negative COVID test results because remember, there is that version of COVID where like some people it presents as a pretty gnarly GI bug and you spend a lot of time in the bathroom. That doesn't appear to be what happened to uh, Stroll. He just had some kind of stomach bug and it kind of unfolded really bizarrely in some ways because the Friday practice was completely swamped with bad weather. It was a cold drizzly weekend in the Eiffel Mountains. Uh, the Friday practice where they were going to rotate through a lot of rising uh, Formula 2 talent this weekend, that didn't happen. The entire thing was rained out. Uh, I don't know if this influenced the decision to let it ride with Stroll a little bit because I think he was already getting sick as the weekend began. Uh, but either way, they didn't make the call that Stroll was not going to be able to drive until Saturday morning where... Cut to Nico Hulkenberg preparing for a weekend of broadcasting for German TV, having coffee with a friend uh, on the uh, morning before qualifying, 
and getting a frantic phone call from Omar Safnauer saying, hey, uh, we need you to drive this weekend. Uh, so can you just hop in your car and come to the track and drive the racing point? And Hulkenberg was like, yeah. And so he just <laughs> had to show up like short notice understudy style to take a, take the helm of a racing point car that's been substantially upgraded and changed since the last time he drove it at Silverstone. Yeah, I uh, amazingly he he showed up um didn't sleep at all. He says uh we had meetings all night long. I studied the steering wheel, had lots of coffee, so I'm hoping I don't miss the start of the race by falling asleep. Um he also had to use a Renault colored helmet because apparently that was the only one he had on hand. So he's in a pink car with a yellow helmet. Um, but I, I found it interesting that they they actually canceled the practice sessions, um, maybe not only due to uh, you know, the he- heavy rains, but it was f- too foggy for the medical helicopter to fly. Uh, the FIA mandates that a casualty must be able to get to a hospital in 20 minutes, either by car or helicopter, and that uh, wouldn't have been possible given the fog. So they put a contingency in place where um, they uh, said, we have created a landing area about three kilometers from the circuit, allowing a circuit ambulance and a helicopter to meet outside of the Stratus zone essentially a lower altitude where the thick fog slash clouds generally don't form. This is from Autosport, by the way. Uh, the helicopter would then be able to transfer a patient to the hospital within the required time. So, um, yeah, I always love the, the peek into these, like, behind-the-scenes things that you know, we don't think about, but everyone must think about, uh, or was, other people must intense. think about every time. You can see yeah. the fog still burning off as quality began uh in the afternoon there like there were still it still looked like there were little wisps of fog uh that were coming off the track um so it was it was sort of a classic uh nurburgring weekend it's always been described from drivers in the old days kind of a gloomy rainy track whenever one would go through there uh and uh maybe more importantly for our purposes a very cold track. F1 usually chases warm weather through the season, not usually still in Europe this time of year. Uh, but there they were racing in Germany in mid-October. And boy, uh, do people not have experience with that kind of weather. Yeah, it was around 50 Fahrenheit or 10 Celsius, uh, maybe maximum the whole weekend, which means everybody's tires are basically like banana peels uh, on the first you know, go round at least. Um, but the grid shook out like this. Valtteri Botas on top, pole position ahead of Lewis Hamilton. Uh, Max Verstappen just four hundredths off of Hamilton's time in third place. And Charles Leclerc continuing to ring the most out of his Ferrari. They had new barge boards and a floor uh, for both of their cars this weekend. Uh, Alex Albon lining up in fifth, followed by Daniel Ricciardo, Esteban Ocon, Lando Norris, uh, Sergio Perez, and Carlos Sainz in 10th. Both McLarens running a new aero package this weekend, which, when combined with a lack of practice, uh, apparently made the car pretty tricky to drive. Uh, Sebastian Vettel lined up 11th, followed by Pierre Gasly, Daniel Kvyat, uh, and Antonio Giovinazzi getting to Q2 for the first time this season will start the race in 14th. Behind him, Kevin Magnussen and Roman Grosjean, George Russell and Nicholas Latifi, 
Uh, Kimi Raikkonen in 19th place, making history this weekend for the most F1 starts of all time at 323. Uh, and finally, Nico Hulkenberg, who qualified only, let's see, uh, two tenths off of uh, Kimi Raikkonen. Not bad for a guy who had literally zero practice time. Uh, His laps did look rough, though, in Q1. <laughs> like, he was he was locking up like crazy. Uh, it was a different car to, for him. Uh, I think he struggled with it a little bit all weekend, particularly with the grip conditions with this weather. Uh, but, yeah, it, like seeing him in Q1, he very much looked... Uh, Look like me when I'm playing a racing game and I'm trying out like a harder difficulty level without any of the assists. Uh-huh. And suddenly it's like, oh, there's okay, found the edge. Wait, it moved. Uh, so he had a he had a pretty mighty struggle uh, that that first session. Yeah, which which prompted some drivers to say that Formula One has too much practice. Valtteri Bottas said uh, this is a quote from race fans: "Currently in a normal weekend, I feel like there's too much practice. Everyone finds their ways on setups." and optimal things in terms of driving and the car setup. But if there would be a bit less practice, maybe some teams can get it right, some drivers can get it right, and some don't. So I kind of like it with a bit less practice. Hamilton and Verstappen both said similar things. Rob, what's your take on this? Uh, I think there's a lot to recommend it, except that I do have a lot of sympathy for people who pay for the full weekend ticket, and I understand mm-hmm. like wanting to see lots of running time. Particularly, we had that letter last week about what a cool experience it is being able to kind of wander a little bit and check out different parts of the track, uh, on a practice pass. So I think from a fan standpoint, it's a bit of a losing proposition for folks attending, uh, the full race weekend, but I don't know. It's so frustrating to hear this. Cause like on some level, everyone's like, there is something wrong in F1 and the races are too, uh, not procedural, um, but yeah, they're, they're, the procession is, is the word. Yeah, okay. Uh, they're, they're too processional. And so we get suggestions like, well, what if there were less practice and we sort of reintroduced more potential for human error? That's a possibility. That's cool. Um, but then you see this weird recalcitrance to anything like uh, a reverse grid idea where somehow mm-hmm. that's not f1 drivers being fully prepared and engineers being able to like put the best car on the track um that's negotiable but mixing up the order uh that's that's not that's 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 anathema to the spirit so it does frustrate me a little bit that some of the easier options to maybe uh juice up the show get shot down and then something that would kind of deny your attendees a better show uh starts to get get some traction yeah um well danny o'dwyer usually takes us through the start here i know you've got some notes i've got some notes uh what would you rather do take us through the start or uh, uh i can take us through the start a little bit uh right. and you just fill me in with um you know, you fill in the fill in the blanks. Uh, I, yeah. I'll do justice to uh, what what Danny did. Uh, yeah, so it is pretty much an interesting race right from the jump. Uh, Hamilton and Botas both get off to strong starts. Hamilton's is a little bit stronger, and he gets out to a little lead uh, heading down into turn one, and. He uses that to sort of take the center line through the turn and force uh, Valtteri out way wide. Uh, but going against 
type, uh, Botas doesn't back off at all. He mm-hmm. carries all his, his speed uh, through turn one. They were allowing guys to really push the track limits uh, through turn one, letting people really cut outside, particularly on that first lap. And Valtteri sort of rejoins the track alongside Lewis and actually pulls like a little wingtip ahead of him as they head down to two, where Valtteri now has a far superior inside line position and Lewis has to back off. And Valtteri drives off uh, with uh, with the race lead. Um, I thought it was a great move. Oh, it was it was terrific. Uh, it was it once once it was clear it was legal. Uh, it was edgy in all the right <laughs> ways. Uh, they have they have some really good good duels uh, behind them. Ricardo uh, got off to a good start. I want to say that he uh, picked up ground immediately on um, on Albin. Yeah, uh, Albon locked up defending from Ricardo, uh, which actually I think caused Albon to have to pit pretty early on, locking yeah. up and uh, getting a flat spot. Uh, I actually ended up watching the start. The, the things I found most interesting at the start were a lot of the people closer to the back where you started to see some really dynamic starts. Um, starting with like Nico Hulkenberg, uh, he gained, I think, three positions on the first lap. But what's interesting is usually when people do that, you'll often find that they gobbled up a bunch of people at the start. Hulkenberg, uh, you know, the the old pro, didn't do that. He really hung back through turn one, kept uh, kept it very clean, and then basically started making up ground uh, once everyone was through. Uh, he, he started, uh, you know, cut, cutting through the field and work, picking his way forward uh, f- from there, overtaking... Uh, over, overtaking uh, Raikkonen, uh, coming up on Latifi. So Hulken, Hulkenberg uh, had had a very good start to the race, but it was also a very uh, pragmatic start. Giovinazzi... I have an I, explanation for that. Yeah. Uh, Autosport um, says, uh, when asked about some frantic changes being made on his steering wheel off the line uh, and whether it was normal, Hulkenberg told Sky, quote, no, that's not normal. I was in the wrong engine mode. Usually after the burnouts, you go into the run position, but it's two positions on the dial. And after the burnouts, I just did one. So I was in kind of a no energy mode. I noticed it and had to flip it quickly. It didn't cost me anything, but it was just not a great start. Oh, that is funny. Yeah, because I thought he was just like doing the I'm not going to dive in uh, to this melee. Because to be fair, a lot of people were extremely ill served by doing that. Um, There's... I still don't know why why Grosjean uh, ran straight off in turn two. Did you did you figure this out? Um, no. Grosjean loses four positions on the opening lap, but the moment where it all happens, he comes through turn one fine, and then as he approaches turn one, he like begins to turn in, and then just stops and goes straight off into the tarmac uh, in turn two. And I do not. I do not know why. The only thing I can maybe work out is he had Raikkonen and I think one of the Williams uh, inside him to the left. And I do wonder if he saw something in the corner of his eye that made him think that if he turned in, he would have had contact. Um, Given the opening lap that Raikkonen had, if Groshan was getting the heebie-jeebies around him, that might have been a... That might have been good driving sense because uh, Raikkonen did lock up and nearly run to the back of someone uh, through two and into three. 
and he had to completely uh, run off the track. So it was a little messy there. Um, he also got hit see. Grosjean on the finger by some gravel kicked up by Raikkonen. Yeah. Uh, and um, said, I, boy, I hope it's not broken. I can't use my left index finger, basically. Yeah, did you see a story? Uh, did anyone pick that up? Like, did, did his hand get better after that? Or, yeah. or is he kind of screwed he said, up? I heard him... I heard uh, some radio after the race uh, saying like, oh, no, my my hand's better. It's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. But yeah, so Giovinazzi had a good start. Uh, he went inside through turn one, uh, but got was very quick coming through two uh, and got underneath Vettel heading into turn three and uh, just bagged a whole bunch of places at, at the start, um, Giovinazzi starting to show uh, a little bit more form. Uh, Ocon, a cursed start, I would have to say. Mm-hmm. Um, he tried to cover off his inside. I think he had one of the Clarens uh, inside of him. But he kind of did that thing where you sort of half cover off one line, but you don't close it all the way. And then what you've effectively done is you've stranded yourself in no man's land while the two real lines go around you. Uh, And he sort of got pinned there in the middle. But I do have to say, um, that Renault engine always sounds weird to me. Uh, Ocon, if you listen to his in-car, maybe it's just the way the car is mic'd. But again, the car sounded like shit. And it (laughs) also seemed a little sluggish on throttle response. Um, like assuming that like he wasn't doing anything egregious, you just watch him on these corner exits, and the cars around him would get that that little bit of a jump uh, through on the exit of every corner. And to me, that says like there was just a li- he was a little bit down on uh, power or throttle response. Um, but yeah, not not a good start in a season that is continuing to be kind of a disappointment for uh, for Ocon. Yeah, so he dropped back a few spots while uh, Norris jumped Perez um, and started uh, putting pressure on Albon. Uh, up a little further at the front, we know the Ferraris don't really have the pace to hang um, usually in the race. Leclerc did a good job holding fourth for a while, but um, by the time around lap nine, Ricardo has inched closer. Uh, Ricardo gets a DRS boost on the home straight and moves to the outside of turn one and then crosses behind Leclerc. Um, I think I think they call that the cutback uh, to keep the momentum up for the outside of turn two. And again, in the cold conditions, it's amazing that, you know, Ricardo didn't slide off the track, but he gets it done around the outside uh, and takes fourth place. Another really good move. Um, lap 11, Vettel had a weird spin down at turn one. It looked like he juked the car out of its own shoes trying to get around Giovinazzi. Um, he said after the race, I think I lost the car when I was crossing the wake. Certainly that was not the intention and it destroyed my chance, uh, to do better. Um, turn one turning out to be pretty tricky, uh, (laughs) especially for, or even for Botas, uh, from the lead of the race, huge lockup into turn one that sends him wide, causing Hamilton to pass him for the lead. Uh, he then pitted for fresh tires hoping to gain some kind of undercut advantage on Hamilton by lapping on new tires. Unfortunately, he comes out just behind Ricardo, uh, who holds him up a little bit. One lap later, let's see. Go ahead. 
No, just a a couple things. Uh, you know, Hamilton apparently had spotted that Botas was graining his tires uh, well ahead of that. So Hamilton never really let Botas drive off. And so uh, yet another case of like, you kind of have to beat Lewis Hamilton at every stage of a race in order to put him away. And this was a case where uh, Lewis, always very good on tires. Uh, that's going to be especially critical in mixed conditions like this. Uh, Lewis got a feel for managing the tires in the cold weather and Valtteri didn't. Uh, and you know, that, that loss of adhesion is, is sort of what causes that off in turn one. Um, and yeah, it, talk about, I don't know if it was even an option for, for him to, to stay out, but again, the, the, um, the undercut thing, like anything that could go wrong for, for Botas from this point forward basically did. Yeah. Um, first, though, it goes wrong for George Russell. Kimi Raikkonen, continuing to be uh, a wild card in this race, goes for a move on the inside of turn one uh, on Russell. He locks up and then loses the rear, causing him to slide into Russell and just bounce him off the track uh, as their tires touched. Um, could not have been comfortable for Russell. Uh, he is out of the race with a puncture and suspension damage. Raikkonen earns a 10 second time penalty uh, and two points on his license. Uh, we also get a virtual safety car for the recovery of Russell's car, um, which means in effect a 13 second pit, pit time uh, versus the normal 21 second under green flag conditions. Hamilton, Verstappen, and Ricardo uh, from first, second, and fourth all pit um, and the virtual safety car ends shortly thereafter. So due to luck in their track position, those guys uh, all get an extra fast pit stop. Um, Ricardo comes out in ninth place, but everybody ahead of him besides uh, Hamilton, Verstappen, and Botas uh, have yet to pit. So he's looking pretty good. Uh, apparently, uh, Mercedes may have get, had a weirdly slow slow stop. Uh, for Hamilton under that virtual safety car, um, it looks like they were they held uh, Hamilton because Verstappen was coming in, so they didn't want to release him unsafely. Okay. Uh, lap seventeen, Kvyat going for a pass on Albon at the very tight uh, chicane complex of turn thirteen and fourteen, but he locks up and cuts the corner. Uh, Albon quickly, quickly catches up with him and passes, and then inexplicably cuts in front of him uh clipping off Kvyat's front wing which spins off and comes to rest on the home straight Albon uh, again was down there because he pitted on lap eight due to the flat spot he earned on lap one uh what did you make of this one Rob um to me like I think Albon was fine like like honestly uh, he's he's trying to like cut a driver's angle of attack off uh, and sort of own that racing line. He had to run. Uh, I understand the move. Uh, I, you know, sometimes it goes a little bit bad, but to me, like Kvyat, Kvyat lost it and was trying to basically make up ground from straight line a chicane. Uh, and like it goes bad sometimes, but I I don't like Albin got penalized for this and. For me, if you're if you're trying to build that file up of like 
iffy decisions from Albin, where he puts things out of his control and puts them in the hands of other drivers or in the hands of stewards. This is another, you know, this is another uh, piece of evidence in that case against Albin's judgment. But me watching it, I thought it was fine in real time on replay. I still basically thought it was fine. Um, it's just Albin when things see things that seem fine and would normally be fine Albin seems really talented at having them go wrong uh but here i don't i don't feel that his decision was necessarily the bad one yeah i i i don't it looks like he was just trying to get in position for the upcoming turn but i don't know why you need to do it so quickly i yeah i i don't know it, to me it, it seemed like don't you like kiviat's already slowed he would have had to give that position to albon anyway why be really aggressive with him and not give yourself a millisecond more before you moved over to to clear i yeah i don't know uh but i'm kind of with you trouble just seems to find albon um we get yellow flags for sector three, but no safety car, uh, and the and the woes continue for uh, for drivers. Botas, who was in third and at one point was leading this race, goes out with a suspected MGUH problem, um, and then four laps later, Ocon goes out, which with what sounds like a hydraulics problem, um, and then a lap later, Albon who not only had a cooling problem, but also that five-second penalty for the incident with Kvyat, uh, goes out of the race. Um, apparently, Horner said uh, he picked up some debris and that pierced a radiator in the car. Uh, he also picked up two penalty points on his license. Um, and and it doesn't Norris. stop there. Yeah. yeah, lap 26, Rob. Yeah, no, uh, just the, the attritional phase of this race uh, was was pretty pronounced. Norris uh, Norris puts in his first distress call, basically, for an issue <laughs> with his engine. And unlike every other driver for whom things go from, like, fine to disastrous, like, instantaneously, Norris has to drive a miserable Grand Prix from from here forward uh the the thing he says is he's not getting throttle response uh he's down on power the engine is sluggish to respond and immediately it goes into uh sort of throwing everything at the wall troubleshooting uh in terms of things that he can do on a steering wheel to uh reboot it but he is getting and will continue to be uh getting increasingly frazzled uh by lap 30 uh he he's saying that you know, the power problem is getting worse. Um, and then at some point, they just kind of told him, look, man, you're going to have to manage it. Uh, you're doing great in the corners. Uh, and so he's basically like told, uh, you know, lean into this part of your driving style, but there's nothing we can do. Just just try to, uh, you know, defend what you can. And uh, it's probably the... Most frazzled I've seen Norris uh, in a mm -hmm. Grand Prix. Uh, you know, before all is said and done, uh, he's basically lightly bickering uh, with his with his race engineer over over the comms. But uh, yeah, Norris has kind of a cursed race uh, from from here forward. Yeah, so he rejoins after that pit stop 
and tries to fend off Perez, but uh, Perez makes quick work of him at the chicane and uh, takes fifth place. Four laps later, Perez then attacks Leclerc at the final corner, um, but Leclerc gets DRS right after that and retakes the position on the home straight. Uh, a lap later, though, Perez tries it again and manages to stay far enough ahead that time to keep uh, fourth position. But yes, lap 44, Norris's woes continue as he pulls off the track with an engine problem. Um, although, judging by the burn marks on the outside of the car, it looks like the McLarens are powered by the Ark of the Covenant. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. Yeah. Uh, the same issue, apparently, with this car that caused signs to miss the start in Spa. Um, team principal uh, Andreas Seidel said, and this quote from Autosport, there's an issue on the ignition side, which is causing unburned fuel going into the exhaust. And then it goes kaput. We tried to get out of this protection mode the engine goes into when having such an issue, but unfortunately it wasn't possible because the problem was constantly there. Uh, unfortunately, Norris's car is on its last set of parts before he has to tar- start taking penalties. Um, and we get a safety car where a bunch of people pit. Hamilton, Verstappen, and Ricardo. Uh, in again, first, second, and fourth. Crucially, Perez decides uh, to trade a pit stop for third place position on the track. Leclerc and Grosjean also opt not to pit. Leclerc, it means uh, for him that he gets to keep sixth place. And for Grosjean, it means he, means he moves from 10th to 7th place. Uh, but again, everybody's tires are like 14 to 16 laps old here. Um, so it's, it's a gamble. Much complaining from... Hamilton and Verstappen about the speed of the safety car and how long it was out. Hamilton saying it's not safe, uh, presumably because everyone's tires will be cold for the restart. Um, Race director Michael Massey said after the race that there is a requirement in the sporting regulations to waive all lapped cars past. I think from that point, it was position six onward that was still running. So 10, 11 cars that had to unlap themselves and therefore the safety car period was a bit longer than what we would have normally expected. So the the role of the safety car in this situation is to first slow down the field for the safety of the track workers. And then once the track is clear, lapped cars get to pass the safety car and then reform behind the lead group for the restart, which takes time. Um, Especially in these conditions, it allows the tires to cool because the cars aren't putting any pressure on them so uh what do you think rob should we should we just restart with the back markers in play um i don't know i think i like the idea of unlapping uh letting those cars unlap themselves and uh getting them clear so that you you have a bit more of a shootout at the front and uh those guys can just race without worrying about blue flags uh, the more radical proposal I've heard, I think, from James Allison was doing an AMA on Reddit where he was asked, what's your controversial uh, F1 take? Like, what change should they make? <laughs> and he was his, his was, uh, let's get rid of blue flags. Let's stop making it so that, uh, like, the, the fast cars just expect everyone to part. And it turns into you have to work to lap people and get them out of the way. Uh, that could be more interesting than what we've got right now, uh, which is for a number of years. You know, there have been a handful of teams on the lead lap, and then everyone else is just kind of keeping an eye out for a blue. 
Um, yeah, I. This was a case where the complaining, uh, and I know the the tire temperatures were low, and it was it was worrying drivers. But I just, I just couldn't. I, I didn't care that much. Uh, yeah. to, to me, it was like, <laughs> yeah, it's a cold day. Uh, sometimes it's going to be that way. Um, F, F1 is a sport where conditions can be bad and you are expected to overcome those conditions. Uh, and this notion that, you know, they needed to be running at a faster pace so the tires could get back into their infinitesimally small, like optimal perfor- uh, performance range. Uh, who gives a shit? Uh, <laughs> you know, drive the car. <laughs> Yeah, and maybe this is not a safety car problem. Yeah. Right? Maybe this is a tire problem. Um, I thought it was interesting seeing Hamilton use the DAS, the DAS, the DAS system here, moving his uh, wheel forward and back to change the the angle, the toe angle of the front tires. Uh, We've explained this before, but when he pulls back on the wheel toward his chest the front tires angle ever so slightly inward, like you're pigeon-toed, and then by virtue of that, scuff along the ground a little more and warm up the tires uh, more than someone who does not have the DAS system. Toto Wolf, who I think would be keen to downplay the advantage this gives uh, Mercedes cars, says, the DAS helped a little bit. It's not the game changer, the silver bullet, like everyone believes, but it is a good tool to keep a little bit more heat uh, in the front. I don't know if they showed this on the main feed because I, like you, I believe, Rob, uh, was watching the race from the pit lane feed. Do you want to talk yep. about your experience with that? Uh, I mean, you know, I think we've had a couple of letters about it. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's a, it's a very, it feels like you're seeing much more information at all times. Uh, the pit lane feed goes into a partition three pane uh, display with a main camera angle and then two uh, other cameras, usually in cars, uh, running concurrently, often showing things unrelated to what's happening in the main frame. Uh, and so you'll be keeping abreast of two, sometimes three uh, bits of action happening at different parts within the field. Um, Alex Brundle and Alice Powell were the commentators for this race on the uh, pit lane channel. Alex were... Jakes, I believe. Pardon? It's uh, Alex Jakes and uh, Alice Oh, was Powell. it? I thought it was uh, a yeah. little... I thought it was little Brundle. Brundle. Yeah, Brundle uh, was... Or, or Alice subbed for Brundle. Alex oh, Jakes okay. is the play-by-play. Um, yeah, but, uh, he was like, it was a, it was a good commentary team. And I think I'll say this, um, I like Crofty, I think, and I understand how this ends up happening. Uh, we've both done like personality led, uh, content, like at various points in our careers, arguably that's what the show is, uh, to an extent, (laughs) but one of the things you run into with with that kind of thing is you originally show up and you're there to your primary focal point is the topic, the thing you're covering. 
And then people like enjoy the little bits where the mask cracks and people show like their personality a little bit more. And you will always get more encouragement to do that. You will always get the feedback like, oh, we love it when you guys go off topic and tangents, etc. Um, and because usually that's, usually that's nice feedback, you'll, you'll want to believe that more. Um, but if you follow that impulse all the way down, eventually you're kind of phoning in the, the primary commentary. And sometimes I feel that's where Sky ends up, uh, where like you'll have Crofty like noticeably disengaged from what's happening in the race or doing kind of like weak banter with Ted Kravitz, uh, as two guys who worked together for ages and you have a good rapport, but like I heard more about, Crofty's thoughts about socks and sandals uh, this weekend than than I really need to, um, and you just get less of that on on the PLC. So I think that's the other that's the other dynamic is the pit lane channel because there's so much happening on the cameras and the commentators are kind of racing to cover all of it. Uh, it does feel a little bit more tuned into what's happening in the race. Whereas main feed sometimes can feel a little bit detached. Um, and so I think that was the other thing is PLC showing more. And also it felt like the commentators are just a little more interested in, in seeing more of what's happening. Yeah. I, um, I guess we should point out it's, it's called the pit lane channel, but it's really sort of a misnomer. They don't, it's not just a camera in the pit lane. It's just their, their alternate. It's kind of like the video wall in back to the future too, where they just pull up, you know, as many video feeds as they can. Um, it reminds me a lot of uh, NFL Red Zone, if you've ever watched yeah. that. It's just like an assault of information on you. It's kind of exhausting to watch, honestly. Yes. Um, but you're right. Because of the virtue, by virtue of the fact that there's so much information, the, the commentators must be focused at all times. Uh, and I, I wouldn't recommend it to like a casual Formula One fan. Like, I don't like you know, my, my parents should watch the pit lane channel. I think it's too much. Um, but I think for probably for people listening to this podcast, um, you should check it out if, if you have, so it, it comes with, uh, F1 TV, um, formula one's official streaming service. So if you have access to, to that in uh, your country, um, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's probably the, frankly, the most compelling reason to get F1 TV uh, if it is not your only option. So, uh, uh, yeah, a th thumbs up here from me as well. Um, all right, restart on lap 50. Uh, it looks like this, Hamilton, Verstappen, Ricardo, uh, Perez, Sainz, Leclerc, Grosjean, Gasly, Hulkenberg in ninth, Giovinazzi in 10th, and Grosjean in se seventh. Amazing. Um Hamilton partially due perhaps to that DAS advantage pulls out to an early lead. Uh, Ricardo has a great restart too, forcing Verstappen to take a defensive line uh, into turn one. Uh, Ricardo tries his turn two move again around the outside, but can't pull it off uh, and then has to defend from a charging Perez who uh, nearly gets him on the inside of turn three. Uh, Lap 55, Vettel and Magnussen get into a little scrap at turn two, touching wheels. Vettel coming out on top for 11th. Uh, I thought this was good hard racing. What do you, what do you think? Yeah, uh, same. Which you have to do to Magnussen. You do. Uh, and again, if anything, it's it was a pattern this weekend. I feel there were a lot of folks who 
cut through the chicane at Nurburgring and felt like, well, that that was punishment enough. Time to resume racing. And I did kind of feel like uh, maybe that chicane does need some sort of Senna-esque escape road to force people to slow down a little bit more because it certainly did feel to me like you certainly didn't necessarily gain advantage from cutting that chicane, but here's the thing. By by definition, straight-lining a chicane means you fucked up the approach and you were, you know what I mean? Like, that was your escape from a larger mistake. Uh, you're just sort of going over it. And so, do you gain advantage? No. But in some ways, the lack of disadvantage from cutting the chicane, I think, makes it a little advantageous compared to what your pace would have been had you like properly corrected for the mistake uh magnuson and far from the only one uh i did feel a lot of folks uh struggled with that chicane and just resumed the battle as soon as they were four wheels back on um and it made for made for some good racing um but i i did kind of my eyebrows were a little bit raised at how you saw circuit rejoins from that chicane being handled as opposed to some of the more baroque approaches we've seen in other parts of other courses uh this this year well this good race came to an end on lap 60 with lewis hamilton on top tying michael schumacher's record of 91 wins during the post-race interview uh michael's son mick presented hamilton with one of his dad's uh, race helmets which is a pretty cool moment um hamilton also said uh, I remember playing Michael in a game called Grand Prix 2, I think it was. And I think at the time I was playing you at one stage too, referring to uh, David Coulthard, who was interviewing him. Um, you can see Danny's overview of the first game in the uh, Grand Prix uh, video game series uh, over on the Shift F1 YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Shift F1. Or uh, I'll put a link in the show notes as well if you want to see uh, what those 90s racing games looked like. Uh Second place, Max Verstappen, who also got the fastest lap. And what do you know? In third place, he holds on to it. Daniel Ricciardo fends off Sergio Perez to take the team's first podium since, I think, 2011. uh, And earning Cyril Abitable a tattoo. Uh, (laughs) Horner mentioning to Verstappen at the end of the race that he'd like to see a big Red Bull uh, on Cyril's butt. So... Um, I guess that's, uh, Ricardo did say number one, yes, that's happening. And number two, he was going to make it German themed. (laughs) Perfect. Uh, there is a great clip from after the podium ceremony of a reporter asking Ricardo why he didn't do a shoey. And you can see that Ricardo completely forgot about it. And he's like, oh no, I can't believe, uh, podium. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. He did make up for it later uh, in his trailer. Um, I will link both of those clips uh, in the show notes as well. Uh, Fourth place, Sergio Perez. Fifth place, Carlos Sainz, followed by Pierre Gasly, Charlotte Claire. And what do you know? The VIP, the substitute, Nico Hulkenberg, making it up to eighth place from 20th with zero practice in the car, earning him a well-deserved driver of the day and hey roman grosjean his first points of the season in ninth place uh he posted a picture of himself on instagram holding two german beers saying two points equals two pints right uh i i like grosjean um i like online grosjean (laughs) 
Uh, and yeah, it turns out his uh, his finger was okay after the race as well. Um, and rounding out the points, Antonio Giovinazzi doing well to make it up to 10th place. Sebastian Vettel in 11th, Kimi Raikkonen uh, in 12th, again, setting that record of most Grand Prix starts. His engineer saying, I know it doesn't mean much for you, uh, but we're very proud to see this moment. Uh, see you later. <laughs> Kevin Magnussen in thir- 13th, Nicholas Latifi in 14th, Daniel Kvyat in 15th, and then not classified were Lando Norris, Alex Albon, Esteban Ocon, Valtteri Bottas, and George Russell. And as a Shift F1 listener Matthew Lewis points out nine teams got points in this race, which is amazing to me. Uh, all it takes is an unusual number of DNFs, and uh, F1 <laughs> gets gets real good. I think that's the other thing is like this was an exciting race, an interesting race, uh, but it definitely is. What was the what was the other one that was just like uh, mechanically like just carnage filled uh, earlier this year uh, from I think bad curbs. Um, yeah, Austria maybe. I feel like it was Austria, but yeah, um, we definitely good things happen when these sort of Swiss timepiece designed uh, F one cars <laughs> like which by their nature maybe do not have the most rugged design uh, constraints put on them um, that definitely can make for a a more interesting uh a more interesting race well the driver standings now look like this lewis hamilton still on top with 230 points valtteri botas has 161 verstappen with 147 daniel ricardo pulls a little bit of a lead on the very close mid-pack in fourth place with 78 points Sergio Perez just behind in fifth with 68. Then we've got Norris with 65, Albon with 64, Leclerc with 63. Stroll has 57, Pierre Gasly in 10th with 53, Sainz has 51. Then down to 12th place, Esteban Ocon has 36, Vettel has 17 points, Daniel Kvyat with 14, Nico Hülkenberg still 15th place with 10 points uh antonio giovinazzi has three now kimmy raikkonen and roman grosjean both have two kevin magnuson has one and the williams boys nicholas latifi and george russell still with zero points in constructors mercedes has 391 red bulls in second with 211 racing points in third with 120 but mclaren just close behind 116 and Renault with 114 uh, Ferrari has 80 points, Alpha Tauri with 67, Alpha Romeo has 5, Gene Haas and team have 3, and Williams again with 0. Um, Alright, should we take it to the news? Let's get into it. So, uh, speaking of Nico Hulkenberg, <laughs> Red Bull's uh, Helmut Marco, always one to... Uh, weigh in on literally everything says that uh nico hulkenberg could be a 2021 option i'll just read his quotes here uh from autosport speaking to german channel sport 1 uh marco said we can call the names that are available on the market this is hulkenberg and this is perez the question is how far away they would be from max we have comparisons with uh ricardo and we can draw conclusions where the drivers stand. I don't think that anyone would get closer than three-tenths. On good days, Albon is also uh, able to create this proximity to Max. Albon is young, but we are aware that if he can't stand the pressure, we can't afford to be standing on one leg when it comes to the World Championship. That is the situation. 
it's actually impossible for a world championship if you only have one car in the action, but we are not there yet. The performance of Albon at the Nürburgring was satisfactory. That's just the situation. Up to now, we have always recruited our drivers from our own junior squad, but there's nobody here at the moment. We do have a Japanese driver who is very fast, uh, but this would be his first year. And to put, I think that's uh, uh, Tsunoda. Yeah. Uh, And to put him in a top team like Red Bull Racing for the first year would risk burning him out. Uh, We are not planning to do that. That's surprising. Uh, So we would have to go the way most other teams do, to rely on proven drivers. We are actually already clear about three positions, said Marco, in reference to the likelihood of Tsunoda stepping up with Alpha Tauri alongside Pierre Gasly. Uh, we want to make the fourth one by Istanbul in mid-November, mid-November at the latest. Wow, all right, that's a lot. Um, I feel like drivers are such temperamental people. You don't need to add more pressure to them. Um that is something that Red Bull does not seem to understand. So either that's what he's doing here or he's like laying the groundwork for when they eventually replace Albon, he can point to this and say, well, it just wasn't quite good enough. Um, yeah, I um, I do not think much of... I don't think much of the way Red Bull's handled this. Uh, and I mean, I'm not saying like Albin specifically. I think at a certain point when you've had multiple driver promotions from your vaunted, uh, like from your, from your vaunted development program through Taro Rosso, uh, AKA Alpha Tauri, and all of that part of the pipeline works it produces good drivers they're they're capable f1 drivers it's all good and then when it comes time to making the jump into formula into uh red bull racing it keeps going wrong it went wrong with kvyat it went wrong with gasly and now it's going wrong with albin and the only driver it has not gone badly for is max uh who won He's unusually talented, uh, probably by F1 standards. Two, clearly had uh, probably more confidence from the team going in, like more visible backing for the, from the team than any of their other drivers. Uh, they, they couldn't really retreat from Max in the way they could these other drivers. And three, uh, Max has, been, has spent his entire life in a uh, pressure cooker situation with adults around him uh you know i mean the stories about how just uh, verstappen both behaves as a person but also trained him as a driver uh suggest that you're not going to find and thank god you're not going to find too many max verstappens out there who've had that kind of those kinds of expectations thrown on their shoulders from a young age so i look at this and i see helmet marco um well this is the other thing uh, Marco and Horner, I both feel love talking to reporters. They can't, they can't stop, uh, and so they end up basically peeling back their deliberations uh, in real time. And whether that's part of coded language to the drivers, or whether it's just the fact that they're in love with building these relationships with the press, I don't know. But we keep coming back to the situation where they're kind of, uh, you know. 
paying lip service to the idea of developing drivers and giving them room to to grow, but then also doing the Dread Pirate Roberts thing where, uh, you know, <laughs> tomorrow I'll kill you. And that is, that's kind of the, the way they seem to be playing it. And at a certain point, you have to look at the pipeline that seems to work right up until Red Bull Racing. And then, for some reason, everyone who gets promoted to that team uh, struggles in the number two spot. And at some point, you just have to assume it's probably not all these individuals who are just failing to measure up. It's probably something systemic. Yeah, and it doesn't show any sign of changing. Um, so, question for you, though. Does that mean... Okay. Is Kvyat cooked? So He doesn't mention him at all there. Yeah, well, that's the thing. He says, we've got three positions that are locked up. Um, and he specifically rules out sending Tsunoda to Red Bull Racing for his first year, but he doesn't say anything about AlphaTauri. So is Kafia just done? I mean, I understand walking away from him at this point, um, but... Yeah, I mean, it, it, sure, it sure sounds like it. Yeah, so what it, so would it be? Like, Gasly continues to develop at AlphaTauri. Uh, Kafia and Albin are both handed their walking papers... You promote Sonoda and hope that he is your next uh, big thing. And then you find somebody who will just perform within an acceptable st- standard deviation from Max. Uh, basically, the Valtteri to Max is Lewis. Uh, three-tenths is an interesting number to pull. Uh, you know, I, I think three-tenths is the clearly somebody who won't be as good, uh, but is <laughs> is comparable. Um I don't know. I uh I mean if you want someone consistent and apparently is good at getting in a car that's tricky to drive and performing, that's that's Hulkenberg, right? Yep. Uh you know the 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 what little I've heard about um like explanations for Albon's performance is that you know he unlike like Max can just feel the grip um, and that the Red Bull is maybe tricky to drive for um, for these new guys. Like I think Horner was even saying that it was the same deal with Gasly. Like they just he and Albon both have problems feeling uh, the grip of the car, uh, and you see this sometimes with um, across motorsports. Like I, I think the um, the Repsol Honda MotoGP bike is very very difficult to ride. Um, and Mark Marquez is just an alien and that's how he can do it. But like you put any other rider on there, like they put Jorge Lorenzo, a championship rider on the bike last year. And he was in last place, like all the time. Um, so it's not like, I, I don't think you can, uh, you know, ignore that part of it. And so if you want somebody to get in your tricky car, I feel like that is Hulkenberg. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Honda and their friends, uh, what's going on? Uh, any new developments on their engines? Uh, not so much new developments. Just the the picture of the landscape around engines is becoming clearer. Um, so Dieter Rankin over at Race Fans has, uh, as always, been doing a lot of good business reporting around around this issue. Um, one of the things that was pointed out is is Honda being a bit hypocritical? Like, were they just finding a justification for leaving F1 when they said 
we need all heads being dedicated to the problem of uh, you know carbon neutrality. And in the meantime, they're continuing to power IndyCar. And so there was some question around like, okay, well, what's going on there? Because they're not even running a hybrid uh, in in Indy, right? That's just that's just an internal combustion engine. They're considering going to a hybrid uh in in the near future which means indycar is like a decade behind uh where motorsport is more broadly honda was asked about this and uh you know their response was look honda performance development is basically an american part of the company um that is a separate r&d unit that's a separate business unit they build those engines and they have chosen to maintain that relationship uh honda's argument is that from the japanese side of the company and their sort of main r&d division uh that is that touches on these sort of initiatives everyone needs to go over into uh net zero technologies because uh, for for one thing, in Honda's uh, as Honda laid it out, Honda is such a huge company that produces so many different lines of vehicle that it's not like Honda has one engine to roll out and that's going to be the the way they get to that objective. They've basically got to find solutions for uh, sedans, for trucks, for SUVs. For basically like delivery trucks and uh, you know heavy tractors, like Honda's kind of everywhere, and so they basically they do not have that many uh, engineers available. They're going to need to tap all of them to begin putting the company on the trajectory for for this for this goal, um, which is is maybe is maybe true. Um, could also be justification. Uh, Rankin did point out that Honda cannot win for losing at F1. Um, the company is always one foot out the door every time they come back into F1. And what that often means is they weren't a stakeholder. They didn't have a st- seat at the table when the turbo hybrid era was basically being laid down into law. Uh, Honda basically arrived late and just had to accept these specs that they'd had no hand in shaping, whereas everyone else had been part of those conversations. Uh, and in Rankin's telling, like Honda follows this pattern of saying, uh, you know, arriving late and then realizing, hey, these regulations are tricky, and then kind of complaining that they didn't have a hand in shaping them and that they're kind of trying to play catch up. Uh, and that was kind of the pattern they played. Uh, they, they they played in, in F1 with this most recent go-round. Um, the other thing that is looming over all of this is um, th- this kind of this crisis of, like, what is F1 going to do with this supplier shortage? Um, the business of making F1 engines is not actually lucrative. Um, again, Rankin went digging into Mercedes' public statements and did the math on the part of Mercedes that produces the F1 powertrain. And there's about 400 people working every year um, on the F1 engines that, that Mercedes sells. Uh, costs about uh, 31 million euro to run that part of the company. Um, so that just 
so you know, is enormously expensive compared to like what an in- internal combustion engine R&D program costs. Like it's just, it doesn't compare. Uh, this is why Cosworth stayed away from uh, F1 entirely because uh, kinetic recovery is not a hard problem to crack. Thermal recovery is. Like the minute you introduce uh, these sort of two-layered recovery systems, you are just in a different category of engineering challenge that becomes uh, both difficult and expensive to solve. Uh, So Mercedes spends all this money just on basically the brains who are thinking about this problem and like fabricating parts, et cetera. Um, When you do the math of what they are allowed to charge to F1 teams, because this is sort of, as part of F1's various like half-ass stabs at cost control, they've, they've tried to create like fixed price schedules uh, for F1 power units, which means there is kind of a ceiling, I guess, on, on what a motor can cost in F1. If you do the math on that, there's a good chance that some of the companies uh, who are major engine suppliers are not making a profit on these uh, on these on these sales of engines and the parts to maintain them uh, because when you think about like what the engines cost to make and then what all that sort of after sale support costs it isn't a real good value proposition and so anyone making engines in F1 is not really there uh, to be making bank doing it and that creates so uh Andreas Seidel over at McLaren has sort of been floating this idea of F1's got to get independent engine manufacturers back in this. Uh, Cosworth being the example of, of a of a company that should that should want to be part of F1. It's got racing DNA, open wheel experience, but Cosworth's wanted to stay out. And the the thing is though that F1 we, we touched on this last week. To have a profitable engine manufacturer and sales business, you've either got to change what te- what you're allowed to charge for those engines, which immediately probably threatens the participation of some of, some of the teams on the F1 grid. So that's a non-starter for F1. Or uh, to make it attractive to like third-party uh, companies like what Honda was doing, like what people imagine uh, Cosworth doing, you are probably then talking about less sophisticated, less demanding engines. But Honda just left because the the place where F1 appears to be headed, technologically speaking, is not where they see the future of automotive engineering going. If they back off and say, we need to run cheaper engines so that like we can get companies like Cosworth and whoever into this, um, how long before... Now you hear that from Renault. Now you hear that from Mercedes. Yeah. Where everyone's looking at it That's and really saying, uh, how does this dovetail with the future of uh, saving cars in a uh, you know carbon-choked planet? It doesn't. So yeah. this is... It's not an immediate crisis uh, because, you know, by some measures, you got till 2026 to figure this out when uh, the the new engines are going to be loaded on the cars and raced for the first time. Uh, yeah, because we're keeping the same engines, even though the, the cars, the look of the cars will change in 2022. Right. The and then there's a weird engine freeze in 2023. 
you get the development right? okay. you get progressive development freezing uh from i like i think from next year uh and i'm not sure how all that's going to work but there's basically a change over time where like the engines kind of spend a season um <laughs> you know in case developmentally speaking like in case like encased in glass um which i don't know what that means if like what if your engine sucks <laughs> what if what if what if the last engine you rolled out is lemon i don't know uh also i'll have to look more into the mechanics of that but yeah so f1 kind of does have time to figure this out but it's a really demanding r&d challenge and it's about the future of the sport so to an extent you don't have time because the key decisions and conversations are going to be happening now yeah i saw an article um that i didn't pick up here but uh ross braun said something like you know, we will have to take, not feedback, but like we'll have to develop the 2026 engine rules with with engine manufacturers um, for, I think, exactly this reason. Uh, you know, because if they couldn't keep Honda around, you're right. It's because it's not where that company is going. But if Honda isn't going that way, you got to believe that everyone else is like, maybe tip in that direction too. So um, I think that would be a wise decision for F1 to uh, consult those guys. Um, fantasy standings here. If you'd like to join our fantasy league, you can do so uh, with the link in the show notes. For the German Grand Prix, uh, here are the top three. It's actually tied for number two. We have Hot Carl Motorsports, and I'll show you my data if you show me yours. Uh, and the number one, Sausage Curb Launch Control from Australia. The other two from America. Overall standings, however, uh, we have a familiar name in third place. That is Louder Than Life from Kenya. And then in second place from Canada, Back Das Haas Up. And number one from America, simply Black Lives Matter. Uh, and that's fantasy. Uh, if you'd like to send us an email, you can do so at shift F1 podcast at gmail.com or hit us up, uh, on Twitter at shift F1 podcast. That's us around the internet. Now let's take it around the world. Shall we? Let's do it. DTM is in Zolder. Zolder. Uh, for rounds eight for round eight. Uh, the IMSA WeatherTech Championship uh, is at Road Atlanta for the Petit Le Mans. Uh, the FIA World Rally Cross Championship is at the Barcelona Catalunya Circuit. MotoGP is in uh, Motorland Aragon uh, in uh, Spain. Uh, the Motocross Grand Prix is in Portugal. Supercars. Uh, well, they. Let's see. This is listing the Super Cheap Auto Bathurst 1000, but I believe that has been delayed. Uh, check your local listings. Uh, we also have the NASCAR Xfinity Series racing at the Kansas City Speedway. Uh, the Kansas Speedway in Kansas City, rather. We have Campin' World Truck also racing there in the Clean Harbors 200. By the way, the Xfinity Series is called the Kansas Lottery 300. 
And NASCAR is also racing at the Kansas Speedway in the Hollywood Casino 400. I don't know if you know this, Rob. Hollywood is in Kansas City. Not a lot of people know that. It's a crazy different world we're living in uh, than just a few months ago. COVID changes everything. Um, and that's uh, that's Germany. We have a uh, another raceless weekend. Back to the old two-week break. Um, but we will be back next week with a, a pre-show for Portimao, which is a new track for me. Uh, and I think for a lot of... <laughs> Uh, F1 fans uh, Rob final thoughts on this race uh, it was good Nürburgring better than I remembered uh, racing in Europe in the colder months uh, maybe the real key to to good racing uh, so let's let's see more of that agreed uh, if you'd like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes you can do so over at patreon.com slash shift f1 Have a good race weekend, everyone. We will see you all next week.